reading in verse 18 and read through the remaining verses of this third chapter. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. This is a very interesting passage of Scripture. If you really pay attention to what we've just read, and we're going to see this unfold, and we won't get through, we're only going to make it through verse 18 this morning. We won't get any further than that. But I do want to point out, as we've just read these verses together, that you will find that Paul is making a distinction. Now, Paul has already clearly explained of what it looks like for one to truly follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's done that through the previous verses of this chapter. As you recall with me, the entire thesis statement of Philippians is found in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, in which Paul uh, exhorts the church to, uh, to acknowledge or to recognize and then pursue in reality things that are excellent, that meaning the things that are uh, superior. And of course, Christ is that superiority. And so in, he's explained what it means for one to be resting in the righteousness of Jesus clearly in the previous verses that we've studied for several weeks and months now. However, in this last part of the chapter, we see that in verses 18 and 19, Paul is identifying these enemies of the cross, as he refers to them. And then he shifts gears when he says, for our conversation in verse 20 is in heaven. And then he speaks about how he's going to change our vile body. And notice the contrast between that of those whose God is their belly. He's talking about those who have a very physical, materialistic perspective, an earthly perspective contrasted with those who are redeemed, who have an eternal perspective. And notice the emphasis emphasis that Paul places here when he says that he may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, our vile body will be transformed. Now notice what he says, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. There's an emphasis that Paul places here to remind us of just how vile our body really is. He's saying that the God of glory is able according to the power that is even able to subdue all things. And he's referring to everything here, but within that he's emphasizing the power of God to transform our vile bodies to appear as his glorious body, that of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a powerful, packed statement within these verses, which we read this morning. I want to show you that from the get-go. So as we begin to study verse 18, we're keeping in mind really what Paul is talking about and the contrast between those who are the enemies of the cross with those who are the followers of Christ, who acknowledge the superiority of Christ, the superiority of the gospel um, to all other things. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you again for the time we can open the Word of God. May you give us discernment by your Spirit. May you teach us from your Word. May your Spirit... Uh, prepare even now our hearts to receive the word of God and Lord that we might understand the truth of the glory that awaits us in Jesus Christ we thank you for the transforming power of the gospel and we pray that we might be have, have, have a commitment to understand and to know more so he who has redeemed us as Paul expresses throughout this entire epistle that we might acknowledge and recognize and pursue after as followers of Christ that which is superior to all else which of course is Jesus Christ and knowing him 
So may you use the Word of God in each of our lives as you would by the working of your Spirit this day. Give us discernment. May the very words of our mouth, meditation of our heart be pleasing unto you. Our Father, in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Last week we examined verse 17 in which Paul exhorted the church to follow his example of his commitment to follow Jesus. And Paul began by stating brethren, and I told you last week that this term, as I've said many times, is often used by Paul as a means of recognizing these to whom he writes or speaks as fellow partakers in the grace and love of the Heavenly Fathers provided for us in Jesus Christ. We see this to be true, and we're not going to go to all these verses. We looked at them last week, but Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12, and 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 2 through 4. Paul continued, then he says, Brethren, be, ye fo- be followers together of me. And we find he mentions similar statements as this statement in 1 Corinthians 4, 15 through 17. And again, I won't, won't spend the time to read these passages this morning, but we will look at them, or, or we looked at them last week, and you can write them down if you'd like and look at them later. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through chapter 11, verse 1. And then 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. And in Philippians chapter 4, Paul further explained the emphasis of his statement in chapter 317. For we read in chapter 317, brethren, be, together, be followers together of me. And in Philippians 4, 9, the next chapter over, we see Paul wrote, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. So Paul was following Jesus, and just as Paul was following Jesus, so should we. The verb follow means fellow imitator. Mark Deaver wrote in his book, Preaching the Gospel, Paul exhibited no pride in putting himself forward as a model. In fact, he demonstrated humility by inviting personal scrutiny into a life, his, that Paul knew was far from perfect. In other words, I said last week to you that this statement, follow me, many have misconstrued this and they remove it from its context in any time that Paul states it in all of these verses we've mentioned. And they look at it as though we are to be followers of men. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, my life is an example before you. And I told you last week, if you recall, the church at Philippi was a Gentile church. The church at Corinth was a Gentile church. The churches of Galatia were Gentile churches. And so these were people who had not the promises. They were not Jews. They were not converted Jews. They were Gentiles who had been saved by the grace of God, who were now part of the church of the Lord Jesus. And they did not have the example of Christ living before them as the Jews did, even those who had been converted and brought to faith. They saw Jesus live his life, saw and heard his teaching. The Gentiles did not. They were not privy to this. They were not blessed with this truth. And so now Paul is an apostle who is living. God has made him an apostle before the Gentiles and unto the Gentiles, who is now a living example of the life of Christ. Not perfectly, not without failure and flaw, not without sin, but yet one who is demonstrating a life of a man who acknowledges the superiority of Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, follow me, this is not an arrogant statement. As a matter of fact, as Deaver points out, it's literally a statement inviting scrutiny into his own life to say, look at my life, judge it as to whether or not I am living according to the scriptures, according to the truth of Jesus Christ. And then if I am, so follow. And that's what Paul says in Corinthians when he says, be ye followers of me as I also am of Christ. And so Paul is making the clear statement here that 
you are to not follow men, but that you are to follow the teaching uh, and those who live in such teaching, those are examples for you, as we saw clarified in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. Deaver further concluded, and I said this last week as well, that example is part of, uh, that, that this is about being an example and about God giving that example before them, but he says example is part of pastoral ministry. In 1 Peter chapter 5, 1-3, we read, The elders which are among you I exhort, whom am also an elder, Peter writes, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. Peter is saying the same thing Paul has said, that the elders of the church, those whom God has called to be the teachers and the pastors, that they are to not only teach this truth, but they are to live in this truth, and their lives are to be an example of that. Therefore, if they are following in the truth of Christ, follow after them in that truth. But don't get fixated on a man. And Paul is not exhorting or commanding or instructing these believers at Philippi to look at me and just do what I do in the sense of arrogance or pride. But he's saying, scrutinize my life to see if I am faithful to the truth that is given to us according to the Scriptures. And then if I am follow thereafter. And so that's what Paul is explaining to them. But Paul further instructed the church, verse 17, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. Paul changes or charges the Philippian church to be on the lookout for and take notice of all those who are living their lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. Within the remaining verses of this chapter, Paul differentiates, as I mentioned and showed you to some degree, between those who are enemies of the cross and those who are followers of Jesus Christ. As we discovered over the past several weeks of our studies through chapter 3 of this epistle, Paul has clearly established, as I previously mentioned, what it means to be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. He does so by explaining and providing personal experience as one who has recognized that to know and grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus was superior to everything else. It is imperative that we keep all Paul has explained in the previous verses and passages in, in view in light of these last verses of this chapter. So Paul begins his conclusion of this chapter by defining first the enemies of the cross. Let's look at verses 18 and 19 again. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Paul points out four specific details which mark those who are the enemies of the cross. And we see that in verse 19. Notice what he says. Their end is destruction, God is their belly, glory is in their shame, and mind earthly things. However, before Paul lists these defining marks, which we're not going to look at this morning, we see these marks of those who are the enemies of the cross, Paul clearly defines for us in a, in a, in a summation of them. But he first expresses tremendous grief over their condition. Notice again verse 18. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. There are several things for us to consider within Paul's statement in verse 18. And that's where we're going to hunker down this morning. That's what we're going to delve into this morning. So let's break up this verse and, and consider what Paul is actually saying before he even identifies those who are the enemies of the cross. He speaks concerning them and his approach or his attitude 
or his perspective or his spirit towards them. First, notice what Paul says. The number of those who are the enemies of the cross is great. He says, for many faults. Now, this was in the first century church. Understand that. And Christ has just died. And now, this is within the first hundred years since the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is stating that there are many, many. And this should not surprise us. There is a misconception specifically within what I refer to as Americanized Christianity. I remember years ago, as a younger, uh, as a teenager even, that I would hear, and, and I, I know this, this number has dwindled through the years, and I would hear it stated concerning America and the polls that were done about those who professed uh, Christianity or, or some form of evangelical Christianity, and, and then those who, who claimed to be atheists and, and so on and so forth or agnostic. And there, was, there were polls that were done, and there was a high percentage of people claiming to, to be followers of Christ. Now, I'll tell you, even as a teenage boy, I knew that that was not true. Meaning, yeah, there's a lot of people maybe saying this because their grandma and grandpa and mom and dad were religious, and now they've carried on some religion traditionally in their lives. But yet, I knew for us to be where we were at that point in time, and we're talking like 30 years ago now, that these people who claim to know Christ are not truly following after Christ. It was quite obvious, just by the, the vast number. And over the years, we have seen that decline, the number of people who would claim to be born again, Christians, if you will, and we've seen a rise in those who would be agnostic, atheistic by profession. And yet, the reality is, and the church seems to be all in an uproar about, oh, this is horrible, and it is horrible. But look, this is not surprising, nor should it be surprising. If in the first century church, Paul said, there are many who are the enemies of the cross, then why would we not think that 2,000 years later, there would not be many multiplied more who are enemies of the cross? So the spiritual decline that we have witnessed over the past several decades is not unique to our times. It is not unique to our culture, our society, or our nation. However, the Scriptures clearly reveal that there not only has always been enemies of the cross, but what's more is that the enemies of the cross or the number of those who reject God and the truth make up the majority. Listen, there will never be a moment within this life. I don't care what you hear. Look at the scriptures. There's never going to be a moment within this earthly life that the number of believers are going to outnumber the unbelievers. I don't know if I believe that. Well, let's look what Jesus said, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate. Have you forgotten this? For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Jesus himself said, look, destructive path is broad and wide, the gate is wide, the way is broad, and there are multitudes who are heading down that path. He said, but the path of righteousness is narrow, and there's few who are therein. Throughout the scriptures, we see that there have always been enemies of God. I mean, we see this in Genesis, of course. By the way, Eve declared to be an enemy of God when she sinned, and so did Adam. So from the very beginning, we find that to be true. 
But furthermore, in Genesis 6, 5, we read, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Judges 17, 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Romans 1, 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, not meaning in a relationship, meaning that God is, knowing that he is, they glorified him not as God. They did not acknowledge him to be who he is. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was dark. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 8. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laid with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. While Paul spoke of the last days here in this passage in Timothy, John clarified that during his time, they were experiencing what he referred to as the last time. So it's kind of interesting. And remember, John would have been the last of the apostles to have actually died. And he died late in, uh, later in that first century, of course. And yet you'll find that John, while Paul says the last days, now look at what John says in 1 John 2.18. Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. So Paul is saying, oh, it's going to get worse. And many people take that passage totally out of context as well, as though that's applying only to 21st century. No, Paul is saying in his lifetime, it was going to get worse. In John's lifetime, it was going to get worse. We're talking again about first century church. And within that time frame, within that first hundred years, the spirit of Antichrist, many Antichrists were already present, and they were infiltrating the church with Gnosticism denying, of course, the deity of Jesus or that Jesus ever even came in the flesh. And we find that in all of that, John says, hey, these, this is the last time and look how bad it is. He's not talking about us today. He's talking about during his lifetime. So the war against the cross began before the cross. <laughs> Remember in Genesis 3.15, what is known as the Protevangelium, of course, the first mention of the good news, whenever God tells Adam, even Satan, confronts them with their sin and, and tells them the judgment upon sin because of their sin. And if you recall with me, in that passage, of course, we're told that uh, the promise of the Redeemer, the one who would defeat Satan. And from that point forward, there's an attack against the seed, as the Scripture says, and it's constant. And now, Christ has already come. And Satan has been defeated through the cross in time. But yet, he cannot touch our Lord. He cannot prevent his coming. He cannot prevent 
the death, atoning death of Christ. So what does he do now? He attacks those who are the followers of Jesus Christ. Because he cannot attack Christ himself or God himself, so he attacks those who are the people of God. And that's what we see taking place in 1 John when he says, it is the last time, and that many antichrists are come, and hereby we know it's the last time. John is saying this within the first 100 years of the establishment of the church by the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this is the last time. So we know that we've been in the last days, as Peter prophesied in Acts chapter 2, that when Peter prophesied in Acts 2 concerning the prophecy of, or, or spoke of the prophecy of Joel in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost, if you recall with me, he says, these are the latter days which Joel the prophet spoke, saying, and then he gives exactly what's happening during that time frame. And then he goes on to speak about the end of the world and it's cons- being consumed by fire and destroyed. And, and he makes no distinction between the present time he was speaking of at that moment, these are the latter days, between that moment and all the future things which would yet happen in the destruction of the world and, of course, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he makes no time distinctions there. He doesn't say, oh, but then there'll be a period of time in which no. He says, so these are the, those last days. And so my point is this to you this morning. You must understand that we have been in the latter last days since the time of the coming death, burial, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of the church. That began the last days. So when we read passages like this, people immediately often have this tendency to pull it completely from its whole context of all the teaching of Scripture and say, oh, well, Paul said in the latter days it would get worse. Of course, but Paul did not believe that there would be a 21st century church. You know what Paul and the others believed? They believed the Lord would return, the earth would be destroyed in their lifetime. So here we are 2,000 years later. And yet we think that in one nation in all the world, that somehow we're going to get all this turned around. After 2,000 years, oh yeah, this is the time. No, listen, this is prophesied. Men are going to manifest more ungodliness in new ways that that whatever they can conjure up to show how much they hate God, they hate the gospel, and they hate the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what I'm saying to you. Here's your encouraging word for the day. You live in a world that is cursed by sin, that is in constant decline, and it's not going to change. For the good. But, here is the encouraging truth. God has ransomed and continues to ransom men out of this path of destruction and place them into the righteousness of Jesus Christ. and Put that righteousness within them. So while we look at a world in which there is no hope for this world turning around, But there is still the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ to individually transform the lives of men and women to His glory. So, while many people today who think seemingly that spiritual decline is something new, let me—I have to say this. Okay, this is very important, and it's very relevant to where we are. And this started within the church; at least, it was propagated through the church. Shame on the church for this. Listen closely to me, please. And, and this has everything to do with where I'm about to take you concerning the misconception of many today. 
There are many today who believe that we are in the worst moral decline that we've ever seen, spiritual decline we've ever seen, so on and so forth, right? And it's bad. I agree. I can, I can see. Oh, yeah, we live in wicked days. So did Paul, and so did Peter, and so did John, and so did the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, and so did Noah, for that matter, did he not? Every imagination was evil and wicked before God. I mean, that's pretty bad. One man finds grace. That's pretty bad. So they have this idea that, oh, this is the worst it's ever been. But that's all very subjectively construed. In other words, it's based on our nation. And here's what it's really based on. It's not based on spirituality. It's based on morality. And you have to remember something. Morality does not equal Christianity. Morality does not equal righteousness. People can live moral lives, humanly speaking, and yet still perish because they have not been imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So this idea that we judge everything based on morality, and I will say to you, if we were, if we were a people by large that were following after the Lord Jesus Christ, that would transform our physical lives without, it, without question, and that is obvious. Hence, again, I say to you, even the professing believers in our nation, those who profess to know Christ, it's obvious by the, by the immorality and the, and the lack of righteousness within our country that that majority that say they still believe they are, are Christ or they are born again are genuinely not followers of Jesus Christ at all because there would be a transformation that would take place within those lives. But let us not believe for one moment or be duped or deceived into believing that morality equals Christianity. Because it does not. So, many think this spiritual decline is something new or foretold that it would be this way now as though this is what Paul was talking about. Though it's still true in the words of Paul and Peter. But yet, Paul and Peter, again, I don't believe for one second believe that there was a, gonna, going to be a 21st century church. And that it's never been this way prior. The truth remains that the apostles warned of such apostasy even with Solomon charged us as well. This is a verse in Ecclesiastes that's totally just overlooked. It's not spoken of much at all. People are constantly saying, oh, if we could just go back to the good old days. If we could only go back here and it would be like this again. You know what Solomon said about it in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10? He said, say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Let me say it to you like this, okay? I believe when we look at the decline, we must observe, acknowledge that, and recognize it. And yes, we, we speak out against that, of course. But let us not focus on the wrong thing. And here's what I mean by that. If Scripture foretells that the world is going to continue to decline and ultimately be destroyed because of the curse of sin, does Scripture not tell us that? So do you really think it's just going to get much better and then all of a sudden God's going to say, oh, I've had enough now and destroy it? Of course not. This is the decline that we are in. This world has been in this decline since the fall of man in the garden. And it's continued to manifest itself. If you don't believe that, let's look at this for a moment. What did Adam and Eve do? Eve partook of the tree and ate of that forbidden tree of which God said not to eat. Adam then took and ate of that tree as well. And that was unbelief because they believed the lies of Satan and they did not believe God and therefore they failed to sin. But then Cain, their son, did what? Oh, he disobeyed too. He murdered his brother. 
That is showing you the digression from just eating something that's forbidden to eat and then killing your brother. Murder. Do you not think we've been in constant decline? Do you not see that? And that's not going to change. And it's foolish to believe it's going to change. But if we focus only on that, it's no wonder people are so depressed. It's no wonder people are so discouraged. Here's what I rejoice in. I know what's going to happen. The world will be destroyed. It will melt with fervent heat. All things that were made will be destroyed. But here's the beauty. The grace of God that was shown to Adam and Eve and the grace of God that was given to Noah and the grace of God that was demonstrated through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which now the early church has been established because of this grace. The grace that came to Paul on the road to Damascus and redeemed him and John called him and made him the beloved disciple of our Lord. This grace of God is still just as effective as it was during those times. And no matter how wicked things may get and the destruction of the earth will be, the grace of God in Jesus Christ is all sufficient to still redeem man. So why would we not, why would we not focus on that? To say, look, we know the world's going to be destroyed. We, and by the way, again, just a side note, the gospel, the word gospel means good news. And good news is only good because there's bad news that precedes it. So even when it comes to things that will be, we know this earth will be destroyed. And by the way, this Paul makes the distinction. Not, he says, oh, their God is their belly. We saw in verse 19, remember? They live to themselves. But he says, oh, but for us, we're looking to be transformed this vile, wretched body, this flesh to be transformed into the glory, as the glorious body of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is saying. He's not saying, oh, we're praying things will get better in this life. He says, no, our hope is not in this life. Our hope is in eternity with our Lord. And he will faithfully complete that work that he has begun. That's good news. Amidst terrible news of where we are in this present world and where it's been since the time of the apostles, since the time of the early church, and even since the time of creation after the fall of man. So second, let's look at what Paul says. Paul frequently warned of such enemies of the cross. He says, of whom I have told you often. So there are many. We know there's a numerous amount, a majority. But then he says, but I've told you often about these. As I, as I just mentioned, these enemies of the cross were present and growing in number. Paul faithfully warned of such men. These enemies of the cross fan from those who denied the deity and person of Jesus Christ to those who perverted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who deny the deity and person of Jesus Christ, we see examples of this in John's writings, 1 John 2, 22 and 23. Who is a liar, but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. He is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. 1 John 4, 2 and 3. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. Whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. This is John speaking again in first century. Second John verse 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, 
This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So there are those who are enemies of the cross who deny the very person of Christ, the deity of Christ, that he ever even came, that it's a myth, a legend. And then there are also those who are the enemies of the cross who pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul told us of these in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, concerning those Judaizers who had infiltrated the churches of Galatia. He says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another gospel, he's saying, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. So Paul is saying, whether it be an angel or another man come along and preach to you any perversion of the truth of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that man is cursed. Mark him as cursed. Those are pretty harsh words. But then we see Paul follows this idea of which he had spoken much of many who pervert the gospel or who deny the cross of Christ, who are enemies of the cross. Remember the context here. He's saying that for there be many, remember what he says here, for many walk of whom I have told you often, he says. So many walk of whom I have told you often. And we've seen verses in Galatians. You see it throughout other epistles where Paul warns Corinthians of the messengers of Satan that appear as, as uh, make themselves into the apostles of Christ as Satan makes himself into a messenger of light when he's of darkness and so on and so forth. And so Paul has warned over and over and over of these men who are enemies of the cross of Christ. But look at Paul's attitude and spirit here. And that brings us to this third thought concerning this passage and, and portion of this verse. Paul's concern over the enemies of the cross was tremendous. And now tell you even weeping. Paul says, for many whom I've often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross. Paul expressed great concern and grief regarding those who rejected Christ and refused to follow him. This is an interesting passage of Scripture. If there was a person who despised the perverting of the gospel, it was the Apostle Paul. And as we've previously read, Paul declared that those who perverted the gospel in Galatians were to be viewed as cursed. And that's cursed of God, not just cursed of man. Yet Paul also felt sorrow and anguish for those who rejected the truth in the gospel of Jesus. We see this most clearly in Paul's epistle of Romans concerning his fellow Israelites who were blind to the truth of Jesus Christ. In this verse as well, this passage is often uh, mis misread or misquoted. But Paul says in chapter 9, verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed for, from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul did not say... I wish I was a curse. He said, for I could. This is what is known as hyperbole. <laughs> Paul is emphasizing, overemphasizing a point. He's saying, I grieve so heavily for my brethren, kinsmen in the flesh, those of Israel, that I could wish myself a curse. He doesn't say he does wish that. He says, I could. In other words, again, he's speaking in a manner to overemphasize the grief to help us to understand the great sorrow that he had concerning 
those who were his fellow kinsmen in the flesh, who were rejectors of the Lord Jesus. Although Paul marked without hesitation those who were anti-gospel and anti-Christ, he still possessed a tremendous burden for those who remained in spiritual darkness. You know, I love truth more than anything. I've shared this with you before, and this is something that people find funny when I first say it. I love truth more than I love my family. And people think that's odd, but really it's not. Let's stop for a moment. The only reason you think that's odd if you do is because you have this American mindset that is not a biblical at all. Here's the point. If I love my family more than I love truth, I will compromise truth for my family. But if I love truth most, then I will not compromise truth even for my family, which means I will then lead, instruct God, correct, instruct them in the truth. So we are to, be, we are to love truth, love the Lord Jesus Christ more than anything else. And Paul obviously love truth. And as one who loves truth as Paul, it is very easy for us to harshly point out and we should call out that which is error. We should call out those who are deceiving others. And I would say this to you as well. My frustration personally and my anger towards those who are engaged in a false gospel is more so towards those teaching such, not those who are following after. I feel sorry for the sheep who are deceived. And I have a heart for them and compassion for them. I still do not like what they're being led into, but those who genuinely would be believers and yet are falsely taught or misled, or even people who are not believers who are being falsely taught and misled into some other gospel. But I am very harsh in my, in my view or perspective of those who do such, who teach such and mislead such, and Paul marks them and calls them out. And that is something really easy to do if you love truth, to say, this is wrong, Absolutely no questions, ifs, ands, buts about it. And this is what is right. But notice with me that even though Paul said, let them be accursed. Mark these people. Do not follow them. Call them out. But at the same time, there was a compassion within Paul. There was a grief and a sorrow within in him. Towards those who were enemies of the well, how can these two things exist together? I believe they easily can, but it must be for this reason, that we must never forget that while there are those who are blatantly anti-Christ and enemies of the cross, we must never forget that there was a time in which we all were in the same spiritual blindness and were equally spiritually destitute and well, I never, I never was anti the cross like some people. I never blatantly spoke out against God. Listen, the unregenerate heart is at enmity with God. The unregenerate man does not love the Lord, does not love God, and has no desire to follow after. Paul desired for others to come to faith in Christ, and this desire was superseded only by his desire to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ himself. Yet it was this same desire to continue to grow in the knowledge of Jesus personally that produced such a burden for others who did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. May we as Paul recognize the importance of maintaining the purity of the gospel while at the same time possessing a burden for all those who remain in spiritual blindness as enemies of the cross. For again, were it not for God's grace, we too would have remained an enemy of the cross of Jesus Christ. Yet it is by God's grace that the enmity, the hostility, 
that once existed between ourselves and God has been removed through the cross of Jesus. Colossians 1, 20 and 21 says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. As I've told you, theologically speaking, that the different components of salvation, and we've studied this in our theology class over the last several months, but the components, there are different components to salvation that are not synonymous, yet often they are used interchangeably. In other words, the word salvation, the word redemption, the word justification, the word sanctification, the word um, even imputation, the righteousness of Christ being imputed unto us. And many people will say, for instance, oh, I've been saved from sin, I've been saved to God, or I've been redeemed, and they mean I've been saved, right? And so on and so forth. But every one of those terms have specific meanings which reveal and convey a working of Christ, who he is, as he has worked within this redemption, within this salvation as a whole. So in other words, when we come to reconciliation or justification, many times people may just use them interchangeably, but they're not to be used interchangeably because they don't mean the same thing. Justification, again, for instance, is that God has set me into a right relationship with himself. Justification is not merely that God has dealt with my sin. It's that God has put me into a right relationship with himself. Whereas reconciliation is that God has removed the hostility that existed between God and me. So when we read Colossians 1, 20 and 21, and you that, or verse 21, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. We're being told that God has removed the enmity that existed, the hostility that existed between us and him. And in doing so, justification at the same time, put us into a right relationship with himself. I've often said, if I were to put up on a whiteboard or up on the screens this morning and put faith, belief, justification, salvation, sanctification, redemption, imputation, glorification. If I were to put any or all of those words up, they're scrambled, and then said, put them in order. How would you put those in order? You can't. Because it's all one instantaneous work of God, but it's different components of the same work. God is doing it one moment, at one time. So God has reconciled us. He's removed the hostility. And we must remember that no matter how blatantly men may reject the cross of Christ, no matter how blatantly men may express and manifest an absolute hatred for God or for the gospel or for the truth, let us never forget that but for the grace of God, we would still be under the same. So may we therefore, as Paul, speak boldly in the truth of the gospel. But may we do so with hearts that grieve and weep for those who are without Christ who remain indifferent. This is what Paul is saying. We're going to get at that which marks them. And these are wicked men. Paul says they live for themselves. They fill their own bellies. It's all about them and what they can gain and benefit. Whereas Paul says, I live selfishly for, or selflessly for the gospel. They live selfishly for their own gain, and use the gospel or perversion of the gospel as a means to, to benefit themselves. But even in all of that, Paul says, I grieve, weep. I remind you of these men, and I've spoken harshly against them, but at the same time, I do so weeping even now that they are indifferent to the cross of Christ. They are enemies. 
Let us stand for truth unwaveringly. Let, let us stand boldly in the gospel and let us stand against any perversion of the gospel. Let us speak out against any perversion of the gospel. But at the same time, let us remember that we are abiding under the same condemnation as those who are enemies of the cross today before the grace of God. Demonstrated and given. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you again for the truth of your word. I pray that we may have 